The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. This morning we are looking at the parable of the seed and the soils in Matthew 13, 18 through 23. Last week we had the opportunity to read through it and we were left very much in a state of suspense just as Jesus' disciples were wondering what it meant. And here we come today really to Christ and we ask him, Lord, what does it mean? As humble spiritual beggars, we just come and say, teach us the meaning of the parable. If you don't instruct us, we won't understand it. And as we do, we come aware of the gifts of hearing and also of listening. In one sense, they're two different things. Both of them a gift from God. There's an old riddle from the 18th century, which went like this. What comes with a carriage and goes with a carriage is of no use to the carriage, and yet the carriage cannot move without it. Do you know the answer? It's sound. Sound. Let me read it again. Sound comes with a carriage. Sound goes with a carriage. Sound is of no use to the carriage, and yet the carriage cannot move without it. That's true, isn't it? Sounds are all around us all the time. This room is full of sound, isn't it? It's a gift from God to be able to hear it, to have it hit the eardrum and come into our minds and have us understand what the sounds are, what they mean. Let me rearrange the riddle a little bit. What precedes the kingdom, advances the kingdom, is central to the kingdom, and the kingdom cannot grow without it? It's the sound of the Word of God. The sound of the Word of God. This kingdom that we've been talking about all these many months, cannot grow without the proclamation of the Word. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of Christ. And so the very faith on which this kingdom is based comes from hearing. Hearing the Word of God. Time Magazine was talking about the sense of hearing, and I thought this paragraph was very insightful. This is what Time wrote. Asked to select the most precious of the five senses, few people would name hearing. Yet of all man's links to the outside world, hearing seems to be the essential sense, the one that makes man peculiarly human. How precious hearing is becomes clear when it is lacking. A baby born blind or insensitive to pain usually surmounts his handicap to lead a useful life. But a baby born deaf may be lost to mankind. The first steps of his intellectual development are beyond his reach. The sounds of life, his mother's lullaby, the clatter of a rattle, even his own yowl of hunger remain unknown. Even worse, he cannot learn to imitate meaningful sounds because he cannot hear them. Unless heroic efforts rescue him, he will never truly master his own language. He will live cut off from the human race. It is hearing with its offspring, speech, that gives man his superlative ability to communicate, to pass along hard-won knowledge, to make use of that knowledge, and so to rule an entire planet, end quote. Oh, it's very insightful. The gift of hearing, physical hearing, which is the foundation of our gift of speech. 
Now, as Christians, we would add more than just rule a planet. It is through hearing and understanding the word of God that we enter the kingdom of heaven. It is through speech, through the spoken word, the proclaimed word, that faith springs up in the heart. And so people enter the kingdom. And therefore, the creator of speech, the one who invented it, is standing today and saying to each one of us, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so we come to listen to the word of God, to try to understand it. Now, in the last 50 years, extraordinary progress has been made concerning the physics of sound. How sound is made and how it propagates through the air as pressure waves. In my hometown of Framingham, there's the Bose factory. You've heard of Bose. I think we have Bose speakers here. Do we? Maybe we do. I'll have to check after the service. But they study sound and how it expands and contracts and what, you know, is science of the physics of sound. Likewise, in the last 50 years, there's been a great advance in the understanding of the biology of sound. How sound is transferred from pressure waves to neural signals inside the brain through the amazing ear. But we're not going to talk about the physics of sound today. We're not going to talk about the biology of sound today. We're going to talk about the theology of sound. What happens when the ear hears, vibrates with the sound of the proclaimed gospel? What happens after that? And that's what we're going to look at today with the parable of the seed and the soils. Now, don't worry. The sermon that I wrote was 20 pages, and I decided uh, that it would be best to divide it in half. So we're only going to look at the first two soil types this week, and if God gives us opportunity, the next two soil types next week. So be at peace. We're fine. Everything's going to work out just well. All right? We're looking at the first two soils. Now, this parable that Jesus tells, what we call the parable of the seed and the soils, is perhaps his most important parable. Jesus himself said in Mark 4.13, when his disciples came to ask him what the parable meant, he said, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? So Jesus, in saying that, I think, seems to give an importance to this one above the others. This is kind of an entryway parable. If you can understand this, you'll understand all the parables. And I believe the vital issue of the eternity of your soul depends very much on the issues that are raised in this parable. Whether you will spend eternity in heaven or hell depends on how you hear the word of God, how you hear the gospel of the kingdom. Now, let's restate the parable, look at its details, and then try to understand it. Jesus begins in verse 3 and says, The sower went out to sow. The farmer went out to sow his seed. Now, this is clearly the evangelist, the proclaimer of the gospel of the kingdom. In this case, it is Christ himself. In later generations, it will be anyone who is sent to preach the gospel. Any evangelist, any humble Christian uh, who seeks to bring his neighbor or his co-worker, his boss, or relative to Christ, this is the sower, the one who goes out with the message. God willing, later this afternoon, a number of sowers will go out from our church, sowing the seed of the word. Now, anyone, therefore, who crosses an ocean to plant a church in a Muslim country would certainly be a sower, but so also someone who crosses a room at a high school reunion to lead a lost classmate to Christ. This is a sower. Anybody who goes out with the message of the, of the gospel. Now, what is the seed? Well, the seed is clearly, Jesus interprets, the message about the kingdom. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom, he says. 
And so the seed is the message of the kingdom. Now, what does this mean? Well, it's the very thing that the whole gospel of Matthew has been proclaiming. This kingdom of God. The place where God rules. Where he is sovereign. Where he rules over his creation. Things in heaven and earth. Visible and invisible. This is the kingdom. And more than that, where he is adored and glorified and worshipped gladly. This is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of Christ. Where Christ is the gentle, humble leader of our souls who bids us to take his yoke upon him, upon us and learn from him because he is gentle and humble in heart and will find rest for our souls. This kingdom is the kingdom which must be entered through repentance and faith because Jesus said the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And so you must repent and enter the kingdom. This kingdom, this is the message. It is the kingdom described in Matthew 13 with a series of seven parables. Something so valuable that you would sell everything that you had to obtain it. This is the kingdom. Now, the seed which is sowed, we have no control over it. We couldn't create it. It's something that comes to us right from God himself, just like a physical seed does. John MacArthur put it this way, the most faithful and dedicated Christian cannot create the word of the kingdom any more than a farmer or scientist can create the simplest seed. Just as only God creates seeds that reproduce themselves, only God creates the word of the gospel that brings life, the life of his son, to a believer. The work of the Christian witness, therefore, is not to manufacture a message to create a synthetic seed or to modify the seed giving them, given them, but to take the, the revelation of God, the seed, and proclaim it exactly as he has given it. The power of new spiritual life is in the word, just as the power of physical life is in the seed. So we have no right to create a seed, nor could we. We merely take the seed that God has given us and we sow it. We sow it widely. We take the message of the kingdom. Now, the focus of this parable, however, is not on the sower, is it? And it's not really on the seed. The focus of this parable is on the soils, the four different kinds of soils. And each one represents a human being, a human heart, and how he or she receives the sown message. How do we receive the proclaimed message of the gospel? And so we have four different responses. The first is the walkway, the path, the highway, the hardened soil. Verse 4, as he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path and the birds came it up, ate it up. The soil is hard, it's packed by constant traffic. It's like pavement. Therefore, when the seed hits that soil, it bounces. There's no penetration whatsoever. You could cast a million seeds on that soil and none of them will bear fruit. None. It's a hardened soil. Secondly, you've got the rocky soil. A lot of places in the, in the Near East, there's a, a rocky substratum of limestone. My, guard, my, my yard, my garden grows white rocks. Have you noticed this? How they just, just come up out of nowhere. We, leave, we live in the Piedmont area, and so these little rocks, I wish we could sell them and do something with them. We have buckets and buckets of them. But there's a rocky soil, and on top of it, a very thin layer of topsoil. It's a rocky soil. And what happens when the seed goes down there is it doesn't penetrate deeply at all. Just enough soil covers it that it can make a start. But it can't go down. The roots can't go down. So it's got nowhere to go but up. This seed, therefore, will make really spectacular open progress at the beginning. But as soon as the sun comes up, all the moisture is dried up out of that thin layer of soil and the plant withers and dies. 
because it has no root. The third kind of soil is thorny soil. Now, this is fertile for growth, plenty of room for root development, but the problem is that the seed is competing with other plants, thorny plants that bear no fruit. And so there's a, there's a, a struggle going on for the nutrients and for the sunlight and for the water in the soil. And the seed is choked and cannot bear any fruit in the end. And then finally, we've got the good soil. Now, it's remarkable what Jesus says about the good soil. It's rich and fertile. It's plowed and loose. And so the soil sink, the seed soil, uh, sinks down into the soil and it bears what it says 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now, this is incredible. People who have studied agriculture in the ancient Near East said a good yield would be four to eight times what was sown. Four to eight, something like that. Modern American farmers with the, the most advanced techniques of fertilization and moisture control can yield a 30 to 50 times harvest. We're talking double that at the high end. A hundred times what was sown, or also 60 or 30. And after having given us this parable, Jesus then challenges us, doesn't he? He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So that's the parable of the seed and the soil. Now we need the explanation. Last time we talked about why Jesus uses parables. You remember the four reasons. First, to fulfill prophecy. Secondly, to conceal truth from those who will not ask him for it. Thirdly, to reveal truth to those who will ask. And therefore, fourth, to make us spiritual beggars, that we will be humble enough to come and say, Lord, teach us what the parable means. And so, now we want our Lord to instruct us. And so he does. First, the first soil type is the hardened unbeliever. Look at verse 19. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Now here we have the hardened heart, a darkened understanding. As we've said, the four results, the four soils, are four different types of people. And so Jesus says right away, when anyone, any person, hears the message. So we're not talking about agriculture. We're talking about people. And so this particular person hears the message. His eardrums vibrate with the sound, but it doesn't get any further. And why? Because he doesn't understand the message. He doesn't understand it. It makes no penetration. Why not? Because sin and Satan have worked together to harden his heart. Now, the Old Testament version of this is what you would call being stiff-necked. Have you heard about this before? You're a stiff-necked people. In Exodus 32.9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. I say, well, what does that mean? Does it mean I have a sore neck? I need, I need a good massage? Not at all. What it means is I will not bow my neck to your yoke. I'm, I'm not going to yield to you, God. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to live my own kind of life. I don't want a king of the kingdom of heaven coming and telling me what to do. And so I'm stiff-necked. I'm not going to yield to you. Jeremiah 17, 23. It says, they did not listen or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and would not listen or respond to discipline. Jeremiah also said in 5, 3, O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone, and they refused to repent. And so when the gentle king of the kingdom of heaven come and, comes and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. They say, No, this is the very thing I don't want. They're stiff-necked. 
They resist. And so Stephen summarized the whole generation of Jews before the Sanhedrin in Acts 7.51. He said, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So being stiff-necked is the same as having an uncircumcised heart and uncircumcised ears. Nothing penetrates. There's a hardness, an unyieldedness to God. Well, why so hard? What has brought this on? Well, it's the hardening power of sin under the skillful work of the devil. Sin tricks us. It deceives us. It entices us. And it hardens us to the word of the kingdom. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So sin is tricky, and it has a hardening effect on the heart. Ephesians 4, 18 and 19 says, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So they're being gradually hardened and even more hardened and even harder and harder all the time. Reminds me of uh, an illustration from the 1960 Olympics. There was a man from Ethiopia named Abibi Bikila, and he won the gold medal in the marathon that year, set the world record, fastest it had ever been run, 26.2 miles over the burning streets of Rome, the Appian Way, barefoot. Barefoot. Now, let me ask you a question. If you ran one mile on the street barefoot, what would your feet look like? But this man had been running barefoot all his life. And so his feet were tough as shoe leather. And he just preferred to run without shoes. And so I would liken the, the constant rubbing and impact on a BB Bikila's feet to what sin does to a heart. It just makes it hard. And so there's no yieldedness, no interest whatsoever in the gospel. Recently, I was on my way out to a pastor's conference in March uh, in California, and I had the opportunity to sit next to a woman on the flight, and we had a lot of time together, more time than she would have liked, I think. Um, you know, uh, it's probably one of the saddest witnessing opportunities I've had in years. Um, talked to her, asked what she did, and she gave me some kind of a strange answer about herbal herbal remedies or something like that and I thought it's kind of hard to make a living doing that eventually she told me that she was in the adult entertainment business going out to Los Angeles and uh, she said it was the most wicked city on earth and uh, she was one of the hardest people I've ever talked to in all my life she had a pleasant look on her face but she said I hate people I hate life I hate food I hate everything probably would have said I hate you she didn't even know me there was a hardness there and it was tragic, and nothing that I tried would open her up to the point where she kind of turned her body a little away and started reading, and I realized that there was nothing more I could do. There was a hardness to her heart, and so I prayed for her. Now, the hardening that I'm describing especially takes root in the mind. It's especially in the mind that it takes root. It makes even simple biblical truth incomprehensible. 
1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Also in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so sin hardens the heart. And the devil creates a world, a world system around us to accelerate that hardening. He wants that hardening. And he's clever and devious and skillful at bringing it about. And so the blessing of the word of God then becomes a curse. I believe that to hear the word of God, to hear the gospel and reject it, makes you just a little bit harder. It's a little bit harder now for you. It would have been better, 2 Peter 2.21, not to have heard the way of righteousness, then to hear it and to turn your backs on the sacred command that was passed on to you. It's better not to have heard. Because the devil is so active. He's active in the hardening. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so he does this hardening. But then he's very active at the moment of evangelism. He's mentioned in this text, you see. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, the devil, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. You know, this is very discouraging, isn't it? Because you think, well, at least I got a witness in there. At least I planted a seed. Well, if it's of this first category, you did nothing. You accomplished nothing for the kingdom because the devil has snatched away what was sown in the heart. It has no cumulative effect except hardening. Now, the difference is we can't tell from the outside what, what type of soil somebody is. And so they may eventually come to Christ. And so we need to scatter the seed widely. I'm just saying from heaven's perspective, looking down, if it's a hardened soil here, you accomplish nothing today by the preaching of the word, except increase hardening, really. And so it says the birds of the air come and snatch up or eat up what was sown. This is the devil, the evil one, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Satan uses a lot of tricks to do it. He uses the lusts of the present age, the desires that they have for earthly pleasures. Satan uses the sins of other Christians to do it. You know the woman I described to you a moment ago? I mean, I almost hesitate to mention this, but she uh, had as a client a pastor two or three years before that. Been, she said one of the most horrible experiences of her life. It was all she, she could do to get away from him physically, just to survive the time. I knew when she told me that, that humanly speaking, I had zero chance to lead her to Christ. None. But of course, humanly speaking, I have zero chance to lead anyone to Christ. So I still have hope that the gospel can penetrate. I wanted her to believe. But you see how the devil uses this. How hard it's going to be for somebody to reach her with the, with the gospel. Satan will use false teachers to do it. He'll use fear to do it. What will my friends think if I become a Bible thumper? What will happen to me? Satan uses procrastination too. Oh, I can always do that later. Some other time. Another seasonable moment. And so it's snatched away. And what are the eternal consequences of this? Well, hell. Eternal condemnation. Eternal separation from God and torment. Revelation 21.8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving... The vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Unbelievers go to hell. Revelation 21.8. The tragedy of the hardened, packed soil heart that rejects immediately the word 
These people are just simply closed to the gospel. They may reject with violence and vigor, slam the door in your face, get rude, or they may just shrug and blow it off or make a joke. Either way, the word has had no effect on them. The second kind of soil that Jesus talks about is the rocky soil, what I would call the shallow, temporary believer. I put believer in quotes in one sense. Look what it says, 20 and 21. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. This is what I call the temporary believer. Now you say, is that possible? I thought you believed in the eternal security of the believer. I just discern in the New Testament that there are different types of believers. There's different kinds of faith. It is possible to believe in one sense for a little while and then fall away. In the Luke version of this parable, listen to what Jesus said in Luke 8.13. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. Now listen, they believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. That settles it for me. It is possible, therefore, to believe for a while and then fall away. What I believe is that this faith is not the faith that justifies. This is not the kind of faith we heard about in Romans. That we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's not that faith. It's the kind of faith that Jesus encountered when he did miracles in Jerusalem in in John chapter 2. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Did you hear that? They believed in his name. But he would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about what was in a man because he knew all men. He knew what was in their hearts. And so believing in his name is not justifying faith. And so Jesus did not entrust himself to them. They had a different kind of faith. James is the one who gives us the clearest understanding of this. James 2.19 speaks of a faith which does not justify. We could call it demon faith. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. So there's a demon faith that certainly does not save. And then there's a workless faith, a faith that produces no good works. It's a dead faith. James 2 also says it does not save. And so it is possible to believe of a sort and yet not be saved. And so therefore, in this case, I find this perhaps one of the most troubling of all the soil types. Probably the most troubling. Because this person has such a joyful reaction to the word. They're thrilled. They receive the word with joy. They're excited. That joy is genuine as far as it goes. It's a genuine surge of emotions that comes. And those emotions are usually intense. The plant springs up quickly. It looks like it's making good progress. It looks great from the outside. He's so filled with exuberance. He tells all of his friends and neighbors and relatives about his new faith. He feels like all of his problems are solved. The very thing he's been looking for all his life, he's found it at last. And he's telling everyone about it. He's doing all the kind of things you do in church and he's just so excited. He's what we would call on fire for the Lord. Filled with joy. Now, I want you to understand, joy over the gospel is a good thing. It's a very good thing. Look at verse 44 in our same chapter. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, 
went and sold everything he had and bought that field. So joy over the treasure is a good thing. As a matter of fact, if you don't have it, I don't think you're converted. There needs to be a joy over the kingdom, a, a, a re- rejoicing, a delight that your sins are forgiven and that you're going to heaven, ever increasingly so. But apparently there's a counterfeit joy that's going on here earlier in the chapter. He receives the word with joy, but he has no root. This brings us, I think, to some of the history even of, of us as Southern Baptists, as evangelicals, what we call revivalism. Revivals, uh, there's different ways of looking at them. In one sense, spiritually and supernaturally, a revival is a pouring out of the Holy Spirit on a body of people with, with great evidence of conversion. All kinds of things going on. It's an exciting time. Very frequently, we get prayer requests as a staff, and all it says in the card is revival. Now, whoever it is, I haven't had one of those in about a month. So it's time for you to do it again. All right? You don't need to sign it. Keep giving us anonymous cards, and we will keep praying. But understand what we're praying for. It's a supernatural moving of the Holy Spirit whereby large numbers of people are genuinely converted. And then in verse 44, you're going to see the joy of selling everything so that you can have the kingdom. Okay, but could there also be some of the false joy as well? Where people are all excited and they get motivated, maybe put their hands up in the air, maybe they scream for joy, maybe their tears coming down their face. How can we tell the difference? During the revival of the First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards was a careful student of these kind of displays. And he was fighting a battle on two sides. On one side, there were what we call the old lights, or the kind of old, staunch conservative. They said, this kind of enthusiasm in religion is a bad thing. It's definitely of the devil. And he said, no, it isn't. But then there are people on the other side, it is definitely proof that the Spirit has come when you see people jumping for joy and getting all excited or rolling on the ground or weeping or crying out. And so Edwards, with his careful thinking, said it is no sure sign either way when you see this kind of joy. There's no proof either way because we can show right in the text it happens both with a genuine convert and with somebody who's going to fall away when tested. I dare not trust the sweetest frame That's joyful state, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Now, I think it's a good thing when people show outwardly, physically, in their bodies, their joy. But I've learned to be careful. When we preach the gospel, say, oh, definitely they were converted. I saw a tear in their eye. Oh, definitely they were converted. They were so happy after they prayed the sinner's prayer. Only one thing. Perseverance over time through all kinds of tests. That fruit bearing for years and years. That's what I get out of the seed and the soils here. Not an immediate joyful outburst. What happens to this seed? Well, it has no root system and therefore it cannot survive. Since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Martin Lloyd-Jones told a story talking about the whole invitation system uh, which we in our church have used and others use in which you're calling people to an immediate outward visible response to the word. Was preaching in a church once and uh, there was this man that he had seen come regularly but this one particular time the man seemed to be emotionally responding very powerfully uh, to what was being preached. 
And Lloyd-Jones was kind of torn in his mind what to do as a pastor. Should he go up and kind of confront him and deal with him at a personal level? He had preached the gospel, preached the word thoroughly. What should he do? And in the end, he felt the spirit leading him not to, but just let the man go that evening. The next day, he saw him, and the man interacted with him. And uh, Lloyd-Jones was on his way to the prayer meeting. And the man uh, said, uh, you know, if you had asked me to come to prayer after that service, I would have come last night. He said, well, come with me now. Come with me now. He said, no, not interested. But if you had asked me last night, I would have come. And he said, you know, if whatever you got last night didn't last one full day, it isn't the real thing, whatever it was. So there's an immediate reaction and joy, but it has no root. And when trouble comes because of the word, a specific kind of trouble, then you say, what is that? I think it's of two sorts. Persecution, namely your friends, neighbors, they see you're excited, but they're not excited. (laughs) They're not. And they start to make your life hard. They start to oppose you. They start to persecute you falls away. It's too expensive. It's got no root system. Or there's a different kind of trouble that comes by the word. It's the troubling of the soul over over the sin that's still in you. And you get convicted and you realize that you need to change your life. That there's sins that you must put to death. There needs to be a whole different way of living. And that's trouble caused by the word, isn't it? And that person has no, no interest in that kind of life change. In his mind, he has no genuine understanding of the gospel. The part he understands makes him happy, but he doesn't understand the whole scope of the kingdom. In his soul, there's no genuine brokenness over sin. No deep work with the law. Some of this easy believism or decisionism, it's a light work of the the law in the heart, and the person isn't genuinely convicted over sin. And there's no genuine relationship with God. That's what it means when it says he has no root. Jesus says that you are, you are a branch and I'm the vine. You're grafted in. And there's life-giving sap that flows through you. And that sap enables you to survive any trial. And so the very same trial that weeds out the false believer makes the true believer even stronger. Even stronger. In Romans 5, 3-5, it says, Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. And so the trial comes and it makes the genuine believer even stronger, even more hopeful. But it makes the false believer fall away. Fall away. And what does it mean they quickly fall away? This is the most troubling aspect of all. What's the time frame here? I have no idea. If he had told me that he would fall away within a year, and you could make it a year and a day, then you're home free, right? If he had given a definite time frame, and if you could just make it past that, he doesn't give it to you. He just leaves it open. What it means is you need to continue to walk with Christ day after day, seeking him and loving him, trusting in him. But as soon as those trials come, they quickly, quickly fall away. What application are we going to take from this? As we're coming to the Lord's Supper, it's it's very straightforward. I want you to assess yourself. We haven't gotten a chance to preach yet on the thorny soil or the fruitful soil, but you understand this parable. Who are you? Who are you? Are you the the hard-packed soil? Maybe you've been invited to church this morning and you came but you have very little interest in the word, oh, I pray that God would soften your heart. 
I pray that you would be open to the word and not blow it off, but accept it as not the word of man, but the word of God which can save you. And, and if you are the shallow soil, that you would be brought into a living, deeply rooted relationship with Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.